All right, Jesse, the story last week was one of the more infuriating we've had recently. What do you have for me this week? A peaceful Halloween night in Napa Valley turns into a real-life slasher flick when a murderer breaks into a home and stabs two out of three of the promising young women inside. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about drama, trauma, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, we're so excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. Maria Z, Chelsea G, and Nicole L, Eden F, Katie B, and Simi, Lorena Q, Connie H, and Jody W, Christina B, Cassidy H, and Morgan B, Alexandra B, Deirdre B, and Holly G, Tracy R, Haley B, Mary P, Karen R, Kaylee W, and Marissa H. Another amazing group of patrons. We cannot thank you enough for all of your support, patrons, and even if you're just tuning in to listen. And we're also excited to say thank you to all of those who have contributed to our October fundraising campaign for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Yep, as most of you know, this month is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so we're raising money for an organization that has done a ton of good and continues to do so for so many people. So if you want to support, you can find links to donate on our Instagram profile and on our Facebook page. Yep, this is the last week to do so. Andy and I, I think I've already put in a little bit, but we're going to make another donation to probably this week or right around the time this episode comes out. Absolutely. Okay, well, thank you, everyone. And I think it's time to get into the meat of the episode. Absolutely. 26-year-old Lauren Minza got home on Sunday, Halloween night, 2004, around 7 p.m. She could not help but smile at her roommates, Adrian and Leslie, handing out candy to the adorable trick-or-treaters who all were shouting and giggling as they approached the small house in the fading dusk. Chloe, Lauren's old German Shepherd mix, was less than impressed with the holiday, though, because it resulted in strangers knocking on their door every two seconds, and Chloe liked to announce people's arrival. So while Adrian and Leslie were laughing at Lauren, she was trying to calm the dog down, and everyone was a little relieved when the trick-or-treaters started to dissipate. Yeah. So the roommates were finally alone. They're hanging out. It was not going to be a Halloween rager for any of the residents of 2631 Dorset Street. The next day was a Monday, and they weren't really the party animal types anyway. Lauren, Leslie, and Adrian were all 26 years old. They were responsible, and they had bright futures ahead of them. The roommates had really lucked out with one another. They got along well, they respected each other's space, and they also seemed to actively enjoy one another's company. 
It was Lauren's first time living away from home, and she was grateful for her more gregarious housemates. Lauren and Adrian had connected over a volleyball class in early 2004 when Lauren revealed that she didn't have any friends in Napa because basically Lauren is a little bit more shy than the other girls. And they were talking in volleyball because Adrian knows absolutely everybody in the area. And she was like, well, who do you know? Have you met this person? Do you know this person? And finally, Lauren blurted out, I don't actually have any friends in Napa. And she said that Adrian just looked at her and smiled and said, well, now you do. So cute. Yes. She's a very warm person. Adrian was a confident civil engineer who had grown up in nearby Calistoga and seemed to know everyone. Soon the two were living together at a little house on Dorset Street, and Lauren had been absorbed into Adrian's tight-knit circle of close friends. Lauren had introduced herself to some of the young women who lived next door and made fast friends with beautiful Leslie Mazzara. Leslie definitely stood out in Napa. But she kind of would have stood out anywhere because she had this big, beautiful smile, these piercing green eyes, but more so in Northern California due to her very warm, rich Southern accent. <laughs> Leslie was a newcomer to the area. She had gotten a job working with the public at Francis Ford Coppola's winery. Wow. Yes. And she was doing very well there. She'd only been there for six months, but she'd already been promoted twice. Uh. <laughs> yeah, she's crushing it. That's like one of those people that the first day they work somewhere, they're like, nope, yeah, you're not going to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She started as a greeter, and then she was moving her way up the ranks into more of a management position eventually, but all front-facing because she was amazing with people. And she definitely was different from her housemates. Both Lauren and Adrian are very sporty, and Leslie was described by Lauren as like a very girly girl, like lots of makeup, the big hair, you know, the Southern attitude, but she was a pistol. Lauren said that you just could not help but fall in love with her. She was so honest, so absolutely genuine, so friendly. She made you feel important and cared for and welcomed. Yeah. So it was no wonder that when Leslie's short-term rental situation with the girls next door came to an end that Adrian and Lauren asked her to move into their spare room. It was a tight fit. So it's a good thing they got along because the entire house was less than 900 square feet. I had a feeling you were going to say that. I thought you were going to say 800. Yeah. It's not a huge house, but it's really cute. People described it as like almost like a doll's house. Like it was perfect in proportion. And the girls didn't have very large bedrooms and the hangout space wasn't huge, but they had a nice backyard and they all really got along. By Halloween night, 2004, the three women had been living together for four months. After the trick-or-treaters trickled off, Adrienne left to go visit her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Christian, who lived only a block away. Leslie and Lauren settled in to watch a DVD of the HBO classic, you know the show I love, Six Feet Under. Oh yeah, you love that show. You and Dan both. Yes, great taste. And they kind of like put it on and were chatting. It was something like on in the background. And eventually Leslie left to take a phone call and she went upstairs to her room. Lauren had the bedroom downstairs and Adrian and Leslie were upstairs. And eventually she just kind of shouted, good night, I'm going to bed to Lauren just before 10 p.m. By 10.30 p.m., Adrian had also come home sat down for a little bit with Lauren and then said, I'm going to go turn in as well because I'm pretty tired. I had a long day today. So both Adrian and Leslie were now upstairs and going to bed. And Lauren was 
kind of the more responsible one in the home. She was the one who was more of the neat freak. And being that she was on the ground level, she usually closed the house up and made sure the doors were locked and took Chloe out for her last walk and everything. So she did all of that. And she said that she was probably in bed and she was asleep by 1130 at night. So at some point after falling asleep, she was woken up because the light from the neighbor's security, motion detector security light that comes on when it catches something walking by came on and it shined right in her bedroom window. That's kind of (laughs) nice. Yeah. So she kind of woke up, but her neighbor also had cats and they were allowed to be outside. So sometimes the cats walking by would trigger it. So that was her first thought. She definitely did not think about crime in any capacity because Napa is, even though it's a tourist destination, it's a pretty smallish town in general. And it's very safe. At this point in time, there hadn't been a homicide in Napa in over a year or more. So it's just not something that happens all of the time. So she managed to like settle back down, but then her dog, Chloe, started growling. So Chloe's making this low growling sound and she barks. And at that point, She still thinks it's just like the cats and the light bothering Chloe. Maybe she hears the cats outside. So she says, you know, go back to sleep. Come on, shush, go on. And she said that then she rolled over, went back to sleep. And then all of a sudden she woke up again. And this could have happened really fast because she's in and out of consciousness. And she said that she thought somebody was at the front door maybe. And Chloe was starting to make noises. So now she's growling, she's barking, and she's inside with a closed bedroom door because Chloe sleeps with Lauren. And while she's trying to like get her to be quiet because she doesn't want to wake up anyone else in the house, then she noticed it sounded like somebody was going upstairs. So Lauren then heard a noise in Leslie's room and Leslie's room was directly above Lauren's room. And she said that there was like a thumping sound And at that point, she thought that Leslie was having a late night guest, that she was having a guy over because they had recently settled some ground rules and discussed like their boundaries and everything and what people were comfortable with, with having gentlemen callers come over because they all had some sort of entanglements going on in their life. And like, what are we comfortable with? Who can come over? Like how often? That sort of thing. And so she was like, as long as they were quiet, she didn't really care. So she's like, oh, Leslie just must have somebody over. And she tried to go back to sleep. However, she turned over. She looked at the clock. It's past one in the morning. And she thought she heard something going on in Leslie's room. But then weirdly, it seemed like the person was crossing the tiny hall to go into Adrian's room. And so she was like, maybe they're using the bathroom because there's a little bathroom between the two. But it sounded like the person was like genuinely inside of Adrian's room. So she's like, what is going on? And then she started hearing more like banging and thumping from Adrian's room and something hit a wall. And I think her brain at this point was still trying to like make it about sex or make it something that's normal and natural. And so she's still thinking, okay. And then Adrian moaned. She's like, okay, definitely. It's definitely sex. I'm not going out of my mind here. But then she heard Adrian scream. And at that point, her blood ran cold. A second scream ripped through the house and Lauren could tell without a doubt it was pure terror. It was a frightened scream. 
one of which she had never heard from Adrian. So Lauren didn't know what to do. No, what the fuck do you do? Yeah, she was completely frozen. So she went to open her door and her cell phone did not get service in the house. She had to like go down the street to get service, but they did have a landline. So she first wants to find out what's going on with Adrian, but she's scared. And then she also wants to get to the kitchen to get to the phone. As she comes out into the hall, everything is pitch dark. So she can't see anything up the stairs. And then she starts hearing Adrian yelling, oh God, oh God. And all of a sudden there's somebody on the stairs and she's standing, her bedroom's at the base of the stairs. So she's like standing there and this figure and it's really dark, but she can hear the hammering of the steps and there's only like 15 steps. So it's not like a long staircase. Starts running down the stairs, basically coming right towards her. So at that point, she moved. Her instincts had her like basically like grab Chloe and run through back through her room where she had a patio door. And so she could run outside into the backyard. But as soon as she's out in the backyard, she realizes it's fenced in. She's trapped. Isn't Chloe a German shepherd? She's a mix. She's She's a a mutt. Okay. Yeah. And she's really old, too. So I don't know. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she hides in the bushes at this point. And it, thank God, does not sound like the intruder is coming through her room and to her. Yeah, because they don't know that there's no exit out back. Exactly. So they are actually going back to the front, it sounds like, the front of the house. And she could hear the person like messing with these blinds that they had. They had these like wooden blinds that clack together. So she could hear them like messing with them essentially and fighting them to get out because they had apparently come in the window and they were now going out the same window to get outside. So she just stood frozen in the bushes. Chloe's still barking and it seems like this person has left. And for one second, there's just total silence, absolute silence. And then she can just hear Adrian screaming for help in an anguished voice. She said that she was still almost scared motionless. There was a shock factor going on here, but she managed to move herself back into the house. And she did not know. I mean, there could have been a second person in the house. They could come back in. She thinks they're gone, but she doesn't know. And so she yells up to Adrian that she's going to get some help. And she goes to the phone and picks up the cordless phone and it's totally dead. So she doesn't know if somebody cut the line or if it was left off the charger. She has no idea why it's not working, but it's not working. So she's super frantic. But Adrian keeps screaming for her. So she's like, I got to get my phone and I have to go out into my car to drive down the street to like get service so I can call 911. But I also want to go like tell Adrian that I'm going to get help. So she runs up the stairs and she said that at that point she noticed that blood was streaked on the walls. It looked like a horror movie and that when she got to the top, Adrian was making a gurgling sound and she didn't sound like she was doing very well. And Lauren ran to her and she slipped on blood at that point. And she realized that there was blood everywhere. There was a light on, I believe, in Adrian's room at this point. But Leslie's room was pitch black still, but she could see from the light 
that was adjacent from Adrian's room that Leslie was on the floor covered in blood and she was not moving at all or making any sounds. Yeah. She's shaking at this point, obviously, and scared shitless and terrified for Adrian. So she tells Adrian, like, hang on, I'm going to go call 911. And she runs through and she actually got Chloe and her cell phone and got in the car. Because at first she was standing outside just trying to like walk around and get service. And then she's like, oh my God, what if the person's still out here? I have to like get somewhere safe. So she got in her car. She had Chloe get in her car and she literally called 911 while she was driving up and down the street trying to just get somebody on the line. (sighs) And so when the 911 dispatcher answered, she said, oh my God, we got attacked. Please send help. We got attacked and they were like, do you know who did it? And she said, I have no idea. I have no idea. The attack had lasted only four minutes. But in those four minutes, two lives had been lost and so many more would be shattered forever. What happened to Adrian and Leslie was truly a nightmare. It was unspeakably cruel and terribly shocking. Lauren had been lucky enough to survive, but I really don't know if you can call anyone who has lived through a home invasion like that lucky. A sense of peace and trust is broken forever when you experience something like that. And that feeling of unease, of no safety, of vulnerability and anger would resonate not just in Lauren, but also in the larger Napa Valley community after these atrocities. So I chose this case to discuss today because, of course, it is thematically appropriate for the time of year that we are doing it, but also because it happened less than two days after last week's episode. Wow. I don't want to give anything away if you guys are listening out of order, but last week's victim was murdered on the day before Halloween 2004, and this is occurring at basically one in the morning-ish on November 1st. Wow. Halloween night. So when I was organizing my schedule, it just struck me because I'm always constantly thinking about like what people are going through at different times, the same time, but like across the country or the globe. And it was like crazy that these two happened to be so close together. And I also was struck by the fact that they're so different. Last week's case was one of a very slow-moving train wreck. We went through 20 years of this situation building and building and building until it got to a crescendo. But in this case, the one we're discussing today, this was something that absolutely no one saw coming. No one could have predicted this. And, well, last week's neighbors and friends had a pretty decent idea who the murderer was right away. In this case, all of Leslie and Adrian's loved ones were completely mystified. The police end up pretty stumped as well, which led to the community's greater fear that the killer was not connected somehow to Leslie and Adrian at all, that this was potentially some random, horrible violence that could have been committed by a serial killer. But don't fear, the killer would be unmasked less than a year after the attacks So this is not an unsolved case, and it would be someone familiar, yet at the same time, completely shocking. So I think some of you guys probably have heard this case before on other podcasts, but I promise that I will give you so many more details than you have heard because 
I had a great primary source today. It is a book called Nightmare in Napa by Paula Rosa, who is actually a producer on 48 Hours who produced the episodes about this case. And he's like an Emmy award-winning, Peabody award-winning journalist. I think he either went to or taught at Columbia Journalism School. He's just got a great eye and ear. And you could tell that he had exhaustively interviewed everyone that was connected to Adrian and Leslie. And he was investigating this case during the months that it was going unsolved. I found out just so much from this book. So thank you, Mr. La Rosa. There's a Forensic Files about this episode, and there's a Snapped about the case as well. I will put any additional articles and details about my sources in the show notes. Okay, so all of that being said, let's jump back in with the investigation after when the police get on the scene. Unfortunately, Adrian did not survive. And let's find out a heck of a lot more about Adrian and Leslie. The detectives would later say that this was absolutely the most gruesome crime scene any of them had ever been to. It was clear that the murderer had been in good physical shape because of the ferocity of the stab wounds, how quickly he dispatched two very healthy, vibrant, strong young women. And it did appear that Leslie had been killed first. They're getting this information based on Lauren's account, but also because it appeared that Leslie had been completely asleep when she was attacked. Yeah, that's like the thing. It's like he killed them while they were sleeping too. So they were like in such a vulnerable state. Yes. And it seemed like, I mean, almost blessedly, maybe Leslie didn't even really know what was going on. He did not stab her very many times because he had, I think the second stab wound went directly through her heart. And so it seemed likely that she died very quickly. She did not have defensive wounds on her body because I imagine that she was completely asleep and before there was any ability to react, it was over. And then they theorized that Adrian had been next. They were not sure if the intention was to murder both women or just Leslie. And Adrian seemed to wake up because Adrian's light was on. So she might have been woken up by the noise. Their bedrooms are very close together. Again, this is not a very big house. And maybe she was stirring. And then as the killer was leaving, then that is why there was a real struggle with Adrian because at least she was conscious to fight back. And they said that Adrian had been stabbed an incredible amount of times. She had very clearly put up a very strong fight. There were defensive wounds all over her hands and her arms. There were cut marks between her fingers. So she had fought like hell, but whoever this attacker was had strength and seems like rage on their side. The police found one piece of disturbing evidence. The killer had dropped a bunch of black plastic zip ties held together with a rubber band near the window where they had entered the home. So those are the kinds that people use for handcuffing someone. So immediately the detectives are wondering what was the intention behind this attack? If they brought the zip ties, had they planned on kidnapping one or more of the women? 
had something gone awry and they murdered instead? Was there a sexual motivation? Was the plan to somehow tie the girls up and sexually assault them? Yep. Well, neither of the victims, Adrian or Leslie, were sexually assaulted during their murders. But we still can't hold aside that very strange piece of evidence. Yeah. And then no fingerprints on it. I don't know if there was fingerprints. Later on, there is some DNA found from skin cells on the rubber band. Okay. Wow. Yes. That sounds like that would make sense because it's so sticky. Mm-hmm. So they found some skin cells that they could extract DNA from. The other piece of evidence that was promising was that they did find a couple cigarette butts that were left outside of the home. These cigarette butts had been smoked all the way down to the filter, which made them believe that the killer, because nobody in the house smoked. Lauren said that they, none of the girls smoked. They didn't have boyfriends who smoked. Nobody who regularly came to the house was a smoker by any means. There's no reason why cigarette butts would have been in their yard. And so they believed that the killer had essentially cased the joint and had been stalking around the house because one was found in the front and one was found in the back looking for a point of entry while they were smoking the cigarette down to the filter. Okay. You brought up a good point, though. Who are their boyfriends? We're going to talk about that. Okay, good. Yes. (laughs) So the good news is that if these cigarette butts are attached to the killer, they can definitely get DNA off of those. They are hoping they can get DNA, which they are able to extract later from the zip ties. And they also believe that the killer has cut themselves in this attack because there was a lot of blood in this type of frenzied attack. Also, the blade will slip. Yes. And there was a bloody hand print or like hand swipe essentially down where they were running down the stairs. So they believe that that is the killer's blood. There was a cut on potentially their hand. So they can tell hospitals all the way in the area, all the way down to San Francisco, look out for anyone who comes in with a deep wound on their hand. And they believe the killer is right-handed at this point. So now they're taking all of this stuff out for DNA testing. And what they're hoping is that there is a match between all of those things, because then they'll know that that is the killer. They were also trying to figure out who the intended target was. Like we talked about, the killer had gone straight up the stairs and had not followed Lauren into her bedroom or out into the yard. So they don't know whether they even knew if Lauren existed. It's possible that they didn't know that she had a bedroom downstairs. It's possible that they were spooked by the dog. They don't want to mess with the dog. They could hear the dog behind the door. And it seemed unlikely that Lauren was the target, given that... Someone close to her or who is specifically targeting her would have known where she stayed. And also they would have jumped the fence and gone through the patio door to get to Lauren precisely rather than breaking in the front and coming directly up the stairs where Adrian and Leslie were. So they're thinking the target is probably not Lauren. And for that reason, we're not going to go into a lot of like Lauren's backstory and her love life because Everyone who's associated with Lauren was also checked out and they were not involved. So in order to figure out who the intended target was, the police had to learn a whole lot more about Adrian and Leslie and their love interests, as you pointed out, Andy. So let's get into that. Adrian was basically a hometown girl while Leslie had only lived in Napa for six months. So it was a lot easier for the police 
to have a full background on Adrian almost immediately. So we are going to start with Adrian as well. Adrian was one of three sisters born in Texas to Arlene Allen. Arlene's first husband and Adrian's father was Tony and Sonia. So it's Adrian and Sonia. They divorced in the 80s and Arlene had remarried a man named Peter Allen and the family moved to Calistoga. So Adrian's the middle sister. She had an older sister and a younger sister. And they joked about how the whole family was super tall. And so at 5'6", Adrian was the runt of the litter. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty tall still, I think. <laughs> so eventually, Peter and Arlene also divorced. And well, the marriage didn't stick. Her love for Calistoga did. She had been very specifically looking for a place that felt like the small town she had grown up in, in Texas, where there was a community and there was nature. And Calistoga was just the perfect place with its cute little downtown and beautiful vineyards and mud baths and bunches of stuff that you can do over there. So they became a big part of their community, Arlene and her daughters. And it seems like their upbringing was pretty wonderful. Adrian was a kind, smart kid who was drawn to Legos. She was obsessed with building bridges, doing like model bridges and how bridges worked. And very early on, when she was only in eighth grade, she decided that she wanted to be a civil engineer. So cool. Yeah, I guess she was doing some mechanical drawing for some elective course. And she was like, Mom, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Don't settle when it comes to your pup's health. Make the switch to fresh food made with real ingredients and backed by science. That's Nom Nom. Jesse, how is that big Halloween-covered Bernese Mountain Dog of yours? <laughs> Artie is great. <laughs> She's really the perfect spooky season dog for a family like mine that loves spooky season everything. Although Alden is kind of trying to make her be a mermaid for Halloween, <laughs> which is kind of hard on a Bernese Mountain Dog. Yeah, I would imagine. But dogs are truly part of the family, and that's why we're so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their very best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, made fresh, and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has a different cook time and a different method. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals that they need truly getting the most out of every bite. I honestly do not think Artie could love Nom Nom more. It has been such an incredible upgrade to her diet, and it's made such a difference to us knowing that she's got a diet that's made just for her. If only cooking for my kids was this easy. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled trynom.com slash lovemurder for 50% off. trynom.com slash lovemurder. 
Jesse, there are so many people out there working incredibly hard but still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed. It's so frustrating. Life just does not happen biweekly. So why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. I love how much choice and agency Earnin gives the people who use it. It's a way for everyone to be more self-sufficient without falling into debt traps and other modern financial challenges. Honestly, life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the timing of when your paycheck is going to land. Make Earnin part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. It's always so amazing when people know at such a young age what they want to do. I Like, it took me until I was, like, 40. <laughs> I'm still figuring out, guys. I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> I feel like you've known for a while that you wanted to do creative writing. Yes. I just had no idea when I was in college that it was going to take this turn. So she did become a civil engineer. At the time of her death, she was working for the Napa Sanitation District. Her educational and career success, though, was not easy. In June of 1994, when Adrian was a teenager, she was in a near-fatal car accident. So apparently, she had taken her mom's car out. I think she was 16 and licensed. And she had met up with some boys. And somehow, we still don't know exactly how, this 15-year-old kid asked her if he could take the car for a spin with the other people in it. And he was unlicensed. He didn't know what he was doing. And she let him in the driver's seat. And it, it seemed like, you know, the roads up there are kind of dusty. Yeah. And a lot of winding mountain country roads. And he had kind of drifted it off the side of the road a little bit. And then he overcorrected. And it sent the car spinning, basically like rolling. And it rolled at least three times. And it was rolling like from driver's side to passenger side, and it kept hitting through the passenger side window. It was open, even though she had her seatbelt on. Adrian's head connected with the pavement every time the car rolled. Jesus. It's terrifying. She did very nearly die. It was one of those situations where she was unrecognizable, where her head had blown up to like several sizes larger than it normally would have been. She had severed an ear. She had a deep gash on her face. Luckily, they did have a plastic surgeon on duty. And Adrian, you would have never guessed, had suffered any sort of catastrophe like that because of the good work the plastic surgeon did. But that was not the hard part. The hard part was that it was a very serious brain injury. And she did have some 
lingering brain damage for quite a while. And she had been a straight A student. She was put up on the varsity volleyball team when she was only a freshman or a sophomore. And now she could not play because she couldn't understand what the coach was saying to her. There was a comprehension issue where if you put a piece of paper in front of her, she could read it. She knew how to read, but she couldn't tell you what it meant. It was like something with what was connecting and her understanding any sort of complex instructions. So this was, as you can imagine, devastating to somebody who had an identity as somebody who was going to be an engineer and also a jock because she essentially had to quit the team. She was being ostracized by her classmates, which is just terrible. I just can't imagine that, that you wouldn't rally around somebody who had gone through something that nearly killed them. You know, it's horrible. Horrible. And Arlene was really worried for her daughter because one of her daughter's close friends actually went to her and said, hey, I just want you to know that Adrian's not doing very well. And she said to me that she wished she had just died in the accident. Arlene doubled down on therapy, on antidepressants, on physical therapies, everything she could do to try to help Adrian. And it, it didn't seem like it was really working. And the thing that really worked for her is such an interesting thing. She got a job at a downtown Napa restaurant. She started working in a casual restaurant downtown. And the manager there was very patient and very helpful. And the staff was apparently very warm and helped her along the way. And I don't know if it was using her brain in that way for taking orders and repetition and the things that she had to do, but something just clicked into place there. It was just something that helped her heal from her brain injury. And by the end of the school year, she was back to her normal, bright and bubbly self and her comprehension was back. Amazing. Isn't that crazy? Working at a restaurant was the thing that kind of like pulled her out of that deep, dark well. But she did go on forever calling that the day of the accident, the day I almost died. And in the future, she would take the day off of work and go do something fun. Like she would go to Great America and ride roller coasters and do something that reminded her that she was alive. Yeah. So she went on to study engineering at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, and she graduated with top grades and got hired close to her hometown in Napa. So Calistoga and Napa aren't terribly far from one another. She had plans of one day being the director of the entire district. When she got hired, she was rising through the ranks and her mom said, wow, you're going to be the, the director. And she's like, that's the plan, mom. She was on the path. At the Napa Sanitation District, Adrian had also met her very best friend, another engineer named Lily. So Lily and Adrian were a lot alike. They were both strong-willed, fun-loving. They had big personalities. Even like Arlene, Adrian's mom, said that she just loved Lily as soon as she met her because she reminded her so much of Adrian. Like the energy they had, like how they approached life was so similar. And so these two, even though they hadn't known each other from childhood, they just clicked. It was just, it was there. It was like that best friend meet cute. And because they worked together, they were together all the time. So they'd go to the gym in the morning before they went to work. Then they'd be at work all day. And then they'd go get drinks after work. So like they were super duper tight. And not only were they similar, but they were also going through similar things in life. In the summer of 2004, they were both having some trouble with their boyfriends. 
Adrian had been dating a bartender named Christian Lee for a couple years on and off, but it had never seemed like the two were eye to eye about the future. Christian had been cheated on by a previous girlfriend and he used that as an excuse or maybe he just could not commit because he said like, I don't know, I've been burned and I just don't really know if I want to get very serious monogamously with someone. Because of that, I'm still healing. And that was very frustrating to Adrian, of course, because I think it had been a couple of years that they were on and off and she didn't want to keep going back and forth with him. Yep. It also seemed like Adrian had a very strong personality. She was the type of person they said that had a lot of kindness and love, but if somebody wasn't performing the way they were supposed to, or even if she got the wrong order in a restaurant, she wouldn't be like, ah, it's okay, I'll just eat anyway. She'd be like, well, no, I actually ordered something else. Can you get me the thing? She's just direct. And it seems like Christian had a similar personality insofar as he was pretty stubborn and he was also very direct. So neither of them were very prone to giving in. And this would lead to a lot of fights, obviously. Yeah, it seems like they're just not compatible. They're not compatible, it seemed like. I think that there was chemistry and there was obviously a lot of care between the two of them. And I think we all experience these relationships in our 20s when you're trying to figure out what is love, what is chemistry, what is compatibility. You can have an amazing time occasionally with somebody and have great sex with somebody, but not actually be compatible with them. They did have this chemistry, though, so they kept breaking up and then... One thing would lead to another. They'd miss one another. Something would happen. They'd think about the other person. They'd get back together. And I think everyone has a friend who has done this. Basically, they were on this roller coaster so long that Adrian's friends were getting kind of sick of the whole thing. Like, come on, just don't go back to him. He's not worth it. Best friend Lily said, when people are dating and you're friends with one of those people, you sort of see their significant others through a filter. Toward the end, I only saw the negative side of Christian because Adrian would come to work crying. And of course, being friends, we'd console her. But you start to get to see Christian in this negative light. Of course. Adrian's friends had a poor opinion of Christian and their relationship. So few people knew at the time of Adrian's death that they'd actually gotten back together. It was one of those things that Adrian wasn't really telling a lot of people because she didn't want to get into it, essentially. <laughs> like, I was like, I don't want to even, you'll tell me like, what are you talking about? He was making you cry two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically they were back together at the time that she was murdered. Ugh. Meanwhile, Lily had been with her boyfriend, Eric, since high school. So she was 25. So she's one year younger than Adrian. And she had pretty much only ever dated Eric. They had been together for eight years at that point. Wow. Yes, and they had planned to get married in Hawaii on November 1st. Adrian was going to be a bridesmaid. However, they too had been fighting over that fall leading up to the wedding, and it caused Lily to have second thoughts and call off the wedding altogether until they could settle some issues. Drama. There was a lot of drama. It sounds like Eric was from a fundamentalist, like religious family, and I think there was some conflicts there with their belief systems. And also, I think that Eric was feeling a little stuck in his career. There was just a lot of stuff going on that was making Lily think, I don't really know if this is the one for me. So Adrian had supported her through this breakup because it is no small feat to call off a wedding. No. Yeah, that's a big deal. It's a very big deal, especially destination wedding. So they had had to call this off. And Adrian had been there for Lily during this time period. 
And they had actually booked a trip to Australia, just the two of them, a girl's trip for later in November. They were supposed to be leaving November 25th, which is now obviously not happening. And also Lily was completely racked with guilt about the fact that even though Adrian obviously had supported her and, and helped her through canceling the wedding, Adrian would not have been in that home in Napa if she had gone through the wedding. She would have been in Hawaii because the attack happened in the early morning hours of November 1st, and that was the day the wedding was supposed to happen. So obviously both Lily and roommate Lauren said, check out Christian Lee. If you think that the person was targeting Adrian, you got to look at Christian. It wasn't that they thought he was dangerous or anything. They just had a very contentious relationship occasionally. Negative filter, like she said. Yeah. Christian was woken up at 7.30 in the morning by the police in the home that he shared with his parents and his brothers on the morning of the murders. So he's living with his family one block away. And he would later recall that it was weird because they were being like aggressive with him, but they also seemed like, like when he sat up, they like stood up like they were afraid of him. It seemed very clear that he was suspect number one, but he didn't even know what had happened. They were asking him questions about Adrian and then they didn't tell him until he was in the police station in interrogation room that Adrian had been murdered. Is he a smoker? He's not. So at that point, he started like hysterically crying. So they're thinking, this seems like a genuine response, but he didn't really have such a great alibi. He just said he was sleeping at home and he only lives a block away. So they had to like check him out, but he passed a polygraph and he also voluntarily gave up his blood because they were able to extract blood and it had turned out that the blood in the house, the butts and the rubber band all had the same DNA. So that's the killer's DNA. Wow. Okay. Wow. So it was all a match. They just don't know a match for whom yet, but it was not Christian. So he was excluded at some point. And he was really devastated. The last text that Adrian would ever send anyone was actually to Christian. And it read, thank you for yesterday. It was one of the best days ever. I wish it could be forever. Oh, poor kid. I know. I mean, I think that for his sake and for people who knew Adrian, at least what a blessing it is that they went out on such a wonderful note and that there was so much love because I know that so many people even in very pedestrian deaths, say like the last thing I said to them was, oh, why don't you do the dishes? Or like something not loving and caring. And so the fact that at least from his perspective, that the last thing that they shared was obviously something very warm and loving is a small comfort. So Christian's out. And otherwise, Adrian truly did not seem to have an enemy in the world. And he doesn't have any inkling or idea as to anyone who could. No, he said one of my ex-girlfriends doesn't like her, but like, I really don't think she's the killer. And she wasn't. But they, they did interview her too. And I believe they even took her DNA just in case. And she was not a match. So it was definitely didn't seem like it was somebody attached to Adrian at this point. So now they turned their attention to Leslie's life and her loves. And they were very decently positive at this point that Leslie had been attacked first. So it seemed possible that Leslie had been the intended target, like we talked about, and perhaps Adrian had just been collateral damage when the killer 
realized that she could be a witness. Yeah. And I have a question about Leslie's timeline. So you said that Leslie was living next door for a while. So she had been in Napa for exactly six months or right around six months. She had lived in a short-term rental with a couple other girls. I say girls, guys. I know it's women, but like I'm going to use them interchangeably. Yeah, they're young. Yeah, they're not very young, but they're in their 20s. And she had, it was like a short-term sublet while she got settled and got a job. And she lived there for two months. And then she moved in with Adrian and Lauren. And she had been living with them for four months. Got it. Okay, cool. Cool. So yeah, so at this point, they're working under the assumption that Leslie was the target. Leslie Mazzara grew up in Anderson, South Carolina with her two other older half-brothers and her single mother, Kathy. It sounds like Kathy was a champion, but she had a hard time in her early life. She was only 18 years old when she had her first son, PJ, and then she subsequently had another son with her first husband and then got divorced eventually. She met another man who was husband number two, Lenny Mazzara. But their relationship quickly went downhill after her pregnancy, and they were divorced only four days after Leslie was born. Oh, my goodness. The stress. And I don't know how in the picture husband number one was with the first two boys, but Kathy was completely overwhelmed. She was alone four days after having a baby with three children. She said that it was Leslie's sweet and sunny disposition that was the only thing that carried her through. Kathy said, she made it easy for me to get up and go to work and try to survive. She had a crib at the edge of my bed and her first word was hi. And I would wake up in the morning and she'd be standing there looking over at me and she'd say, hi. And you couldn't be depressed or feel sorry for yourself when you have this joyous little creature. She gave me a reason to get up and go to work. She came into this world with this warmth and this life. She just was somebody that spread so much sunshine. Though they lived in poverty for most of Leslie's childhood, Leslie never lost optimism, and she had a beautiful way of cheering people up. She grew into a talented and beautiful young woman. In 2002, she competed in the Miss South Carolina pageant. She had already won another pageant, the Miss Williamston pageant. And in the Miss South Carolina pageant, she won the interview section. And there's a part in the taped interview that still makes Kathy cry. It's when she talks about how she was raised. And she said, quote, I came from a family where we all knew we were loved. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And it's like, I don't know. That's a good job, Kathy, because there's times when the electricity was being turned off and she had to decide to become a hairdresser and she tried to go back to college, but she couldn't manage everything and they had no money. But obviously those children were very well loved and they all grew up into incredible people. So that's a testament to the strength of a good single mother. So it's really, really hard to parse down the pages and pages of wonderful things that people said about Leslie. I mean, it's like crazy, the stuff that like people were coming out of the woodwork saying, like people that she had only known for a short period of time. People were coming back from like high school or college and maybe they only had one class with her and they talked about how she had made such a huge impression on them or changed their life in some capacity, even through a small interaction. There was like ex-boyfriends saying that she was like a perfect woman, even after they broke up, like that, like they hoped like maybe someday she'd circle back because there's no greater woman in the entire world than Leslie. Like, I mean, it was 
people had only good things to say about her. In fact, the author and 48 Hours producer, Paul LaRosa, said, quote, if there's one thing everyone says about Leslie, it's that she was a happy person who had the ability to make others happy. To hear her friends speak of her, it's almost as though they are talking about a deity who walked among us. What they say goes so far beyond the typical platitudes one might offer up for a woman who died tragically and far too young. It's clear that Leslie must have had a sunny personality because everyone says the same thing, that she could walk into a room and hold everyone's attention. She was friendly, personable, and loads of fun. People liked to be around her. As one friend said, women wanted to be her and men wanted to be with her. So Leslie was a good student and a talented dancer. She even studied with Alvin Ailey Dance Company in New York City for a little bit. Wow. Like I said, she won the Miss Williamston and then she competed in Miss South Carolina, which she did not place, I believe, in Miss South Carolina, but she made lifelong friends. And when she competed, her platform was child abuse prevention. So we will briefly touch on that if that is a trigger for y'all. Leslie had been called to action due to the beating death of a four-year-old girl named Stephanie. This poor girl had endured terrible abuse and torture and hardships at the hands of people who were her family. So she was so shook by this story and about how this poor girl lived because details came to light that before she was killed, she was also being forced to live in this tiny bathroom. This like tiny half bath is where this poor girl lived. She didn't have a bedroom. So she decided to raise money for this center for child abuse prevention that also was a home for children that had been removed from these types of situations. And she wanted to build a cottage on the property called Stephanie's Cottage, which she ended up raising thousands of dollars in the child's name by going to a mall and actually taping off the same size of the bathroom that Stephanie had been forced to live in. And she put a chair in it And she would sit in the mall for hours on end and people would eventually come up to her and talk to her and she would explain what she was raising money for and how this was the space that the child had been forced to live in for her entire life, basically. That's so impactful. So impactful. And she just would be tireless. And because she had one of those personalities, she raised a lot of money because people wanted to approach her and wanted to talk about what was so important that she was sitting in the mall for hours and hours. Yeah. Leslie went on to study philosophy at University of Georgia. While she was in college, her mom, Kathy, had really gone on a journey to discover herself because Kathy had gone through a lot from an early age. And Leslie was her last baby. And when she was out and gone to college, she was like, I'm going to go and do my own damn thing now. So she went to Alaska and opened a bakery. What? Yeah. And in the two of them were so close that Leslie was happy for her mom, but she missed her. They were very, very close. So for three summers in a row, whenever she wasn't working and one of her best friends would go with her, they would fly to Alaska for the summer and work in her mom's bakery. So cute. Yeah. I think the Miller's Daughter was the name of the bakery. After that, Kathy had a realization that she was being called to the ministry. So she ended up going to seminary school in Berkeley, California. So while this is all going on, Leslie was trying to figure out what she was going to do with her life. She was working as a paralegal, and she thought maybe she wanted to go to law school and become an attorney. And she was in a pretty serious relationship with this guy we'll talk about later. But things really just didn't work out. And she needed a shakeup and a change in her life. And she kind of looked at this trip to California as maybe a reset. Like, she didn't know whether she was going to be in Napa for 
three months or six months or more. She just knew that she wanted to be near her mom, who was in Berkeley at the time, which isn't super duper close, but it's not terribly far from Napa. No. Anywhere up there, I feel like. If you can drive to your family, that's great. Yes, exactly. I mean, I don't even know. It's not super far because Berkeley's north as well. But it's kind of funny because essentially Kathy graduated and she was like almost immediately placed in a ministry in Michigan. (laughs) So it's like she moves all the way out to California and then her mom's like, oops, I got placed in Michigan super fast. Sorry. But this was a thing where you didn't have to really worry about it with Leslie because she just didn't meet a stranger. It was like somebody was like an instant friend. Even Paul DeRosa talks about how several people refer to themselves as Leslie's best friend (laughs) because she just had one of those personalities that she was stunningly close to people, or at least they felt like she was their best friend. So she got there and she didn't know what she was going to do. And it was, I think, her brother's idea that maybe she should check out Francis Ford Coppola's winery, which at the time was called Nebaum Coppola. And I believe now it's called Rubicon. Okay. Which is great. Actually, I took my parents there when I was living in San Francisco and it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. So she always joked too, because Leslie was such a like a bright star that she's like, well, Mr. Coppola hasn't noticed me yet, but it's only a matter of time before he gives me my big break. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> because she was like maybe going to be on camera. When she was in New York, she got on the Letterman show. She was like in a segment for it. It's just, she's just one of those people that's popping up places. So she started working, like I said, she made fast friends there. She made her friends in the neighborhood. She met Adrian and Lauren. She made a huge impression on her colleagues and managers at Nibam Coppola. She was promoted. The entire community, the wine community, and especially the people who worked at Nibam Coppola, were completely gut-punched by her death. When the staff was informed about Leslie's murders, everyone fell apart. One coworker said no one knew what to do. Everyone was just holding each other and crying. It was unbelievable that someone with a personality like Leslie's was not going to be there any longer. Yeah. So as you can probably imagine, someone with Leslie's personality and warmth and good looks definitely would attract a lot of romantic interest. So much so that the police had a puzzle of a time trying to figure out exactly who she was dating versus who might just be obsessed with her that she didn't have a relationship with versus who were the guy friends who maybe wanted to be more than just guy friends because there was just a lot of people in her orbit that might have wanted more from Leslie than she was able to give them. She was super social and beloved. And immediately after the murder, Leslie was described in the press as the beauty queen. And this was an issue that her mother had a lot with the media, is that it felt like everything that Leslie had accomplished, all these lives that she has touched was reduced to the South Carolina beauty queen. Yeah. That isn't from around here. And that was very hurtful. And what was also aggravating was that she was described as dating a lot of men or having a lot of boyfriends. And that was just not the case because it seemed like it was being like implied that she was somehow promiscuous. Yeah, it's unbelievably insensitive. Very insensitive. And Two of her college friends who came out to visit her during this time before the murder, Katie and Vanessa spoke to 48 Hours, and they talked about how people were absolutely misunderstanding who Leslie really was. Vanessa said, Leslie was simply going out with people. She had a large circle of friends. 
Leslie was very electric. Whenever she walked into the room, everybody stopped and looked. She had an ability to draw you to her. It was just amazing. She had the ability to make anyone feel comfortable in any situation. She had this look that would make anyone feel comfortable. And I think with men, that look could be misconstrued as, oh, that's the look. She's giving me the look. But it wasn't like that. Leslie was just a social butterfly. Sitting at home was not her style. I don't think she was that serious about any man in her life. She even made a comment to me that she wasn't finished being Leslie. She wasn't ready to be Leslie and whoever forever. And if men went a bit overboard with Leslie, well, it wasn't her fault. Vanessa and Katie had seen it all back in Georgia, the extravagant things men would do to try to win Leslie's favor. Men always wanted to make Leslie happy, Vanessa said, and if they thought they could buy her flowers or buy her jewelry or even help her out by buying her a car, they would do it just because to see Leslie happy made them happy, I think. I don't think it was because they expected to buy Leslie because she just wasn't that type, but guys were constantly showering her with gifts. Wow. This is just a way she has of being in the world and people are getting the wrong idea. They did say, though, that they had recently visited Leslie in Napa and that she had been casually dating two guys that they knew of. There was a guy named Bo who was about Leslie's age and she seemed really interested in him. He seemed like a good guy. And there was another guy named John. So he's older. He's 35. She's 26. Not older, older, but a little older. And he seemed like he was very wealthy, or at least he was trying to pass himself off as wealthy. Already don't like him. Yeah. And Katie and Vanessa took an instant dislike to him. They thought he was kind of like showing off that he was wealthy. He seemed a little controlling about Leslie. I already see a few red flags here, Mr. John. He was also being super sketchy. Like when they were out at wineries together, he didn't want to be in any of the pictures. He's like, oh, let me just take a picture of you and wouldn't be in pictures with them. So they were like, well, what's that about? So immediately they're looking at this guy. They got to track down John and figure out what his deal is. And another, like a really, really close, like this, uh, I think Leslie's real best friend, Amy, said that Amy had called her and read an email that John had written her. Apparently, Bo had sent two dozen long-stemmed roses to her office. But then John stopped by one day and saw the roses and got really pissed off and wrote her this email like, look what you're doing to us. But she had been very clear that she did not want to be monogamous. So she was like, that's creepy, right? That's like, I need to stop seeing him. And Amy was like, yes, you need to stop seeing him. So all the red flags are going off about this guy, John. By the way, Bo was completely cleared. He had a, an alibi. He gave DNA. Was not Bo. Bo the Bo. So the detectives did track down John, and he was also excluded. And he was not the murderer, but he was still a scumbag. Because <laughs> it turns out that the entire time he was dating Leslie... The reason why he didn't want his picture taken was because he was living with his girlfriend of 13 years. So gross. Also, Paul LaRosa wrote that when 48 Hours contacted him to see if he would make a statement on the record or show up, he said he didn't know Leslie. Wow. Wow. Dude. I know his last name, but I'm not going to say it, but I kind of want to shame him. <laughs> I'm just like, we'll just leave it at John. <laughs> Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. <laughs> I do hope, though, his girlfriend found out all of this shit because of the investigation and the publicity and left his ass. The detectives poured through Leslie's phone records and they discovered something else very strange. On the day of the murder, her ex-boyfriend's father had called her twice. 
Which ex-boyfriend? The one that she had left in South Carolina. So they've been broken up for over six months. Why would her ex's father be calling her? Amy, Leslie's best friend, told the authorities that Leslie had been truly in love with this man's son. So their names are Lee Sr. and Lee Jr. So Lee Jr. and her were like perfect fit. They said that this guy had like real Matthew McConaughey vibes, very laid back. He was an attorney. I think his father was a high-powered attorney. It was exactly the type of guy that they could imagine Leslie settling down with in South Carolina and having a life that they had dreamed of together. I guess that Lee Jr. had bought a ring and they had moved in together. Seems like they were very much heading towards marriage. But Amy said that a few months after she had moved in with Lee Jr., she had gone on a cruise with the entire family. And she said that the dynamic and especially the weirdness from Lee Sr. made her rethink wanting to be in the family. What weirdness? Well, Amy told 48 Hours, quote, Lee's dad made her feel very uncomfortable. He began calling Leslie all the time. She wouldn't answer the phone at the house. This is when she's still living with his son. But he owned the house that they lived in. And sometimes he would come over unannounced. So it made her feel unnerved. And she knew that if she made a decision to go any further in a relationship with the son, that one day she would also be in this family. It's given real, um, like, cold vibes. Yeah. Remember his dad was so obsessed with her? So, of course, they have to talk to both Lee Sr. and Jr. Lee Sr. said that he had not actually spoke to Leslie that day, that he left two messages, which they could confirm. And he said that he had only called her because she had been looking for her birth certificate. And I guess when they had moved into the house, some stuff had gotten moved around. And so she was wondering if her birth certificate was still in that house. This is what he's saying. So he said he had just called for that. It was just a coincidence. And as creepy as this feels, and it seems very odd, both Lee Sr. and Jr. were excluded based on airtight alibis and their DNA. They were in South Carolina at the time, and there was no way around <sighs> it. just going through it, huh? Yeah. And Bo did have a very hard time with Leslie's death. Apparently, he bought, like, every pale pink rose in all of their town in South Carolina, and he was one of the pallbearers at her funeral. <sighs> when it comes to living longer and living better, there is pretty much nothing more important than sleep. Poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, and, ugh, the worst, lower productivity. Yep. And sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count. White blood cells protect our bodies against illness and disease, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. Gosh, I feel like for so long we have diminished how powerful sleep is because everyone's a crazy workaholic these days. But research has shown that sleep is just absolutely the foundation of our mental and physical health. And it also largely dictates how we perform in our days. That's why for me, I've talked about this a lot, you guys, having a consistent nighttime routine is basically a non-negotiable. And for me, that involves trying to get some time away from screens, which is helpful with all of my many, many paper books, more than the occasional bath. And now I'm excited to say our new sponsor, Beam. We are so excited to introduce Beam Dream. It's a healthy hot cocoa for sleeping. 
Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. A recent clinical study revealed Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. Yeah, I'm still stunned by my results with Beam. It's so nice to have a comforting, basically cup of hot cocoa, which somehow is keto-friendly, even though it tastes delicious, <laughs> and drift away to sleep. And the results that I'm getting through my sleep app have been incredible. I can tell a huge difference when I'm not drinking my Beam before bed. Yeah, it's it's truly remarkable. I mean, I know I don't track all of my data as well as you do, but I absolutely feel it. Like I drink it and 20, 30 minutes later, even if I am working in bed, I completely start drifting and I'm like, okay, here we go. (laughs) It's time to shut it all down. The greatest news is that today our listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar, now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has never tasted better. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder for up to 40% off. So digging in further, the police discovered a dark secret in Leslie's family. One that Leslie herself had not known until she was 20 years old. And it did involve a man in her life, her father, Lenny Mazzara, who was in prison in Florida serving two consecutive life sentences for murder. Lenny and Kathy had met in 1976, and they had had a whirlwind relationship, getting married a year into dating. But after Kathy became pregnant, it seemed like they drifted apart I don't really know the whole story. He did speak to 48 Hours and to Paul LaRosa, but it sounds like this guy was not a guy who was going to take responsibility, even though he was completely infatuated with Kathy. At the time that they were going through this, he was managing a rock club. And shortly after they broke up, when Leslie was two, he had moved to Florida So he came to her like her first birthday party, but then he was like not a part of her life really. And so around the time Leslie was two, he was living in Jacksonville, Florida, where he was managing a rock band, it sounds like at that point, and he was selling drugs for a local gangster. Not great life choices, Lenny. Somehow, Lenny got in the middle of this really screwed up situation I'm about to describe. It seems like he was selling a ton of drugs to the lead singer's wife or like it was like the so-and-so band and that guy's wife, the name in the band, was the one who was doing a lot of drugs. And she got herself in some debt that they could not pay. And then, of course, Lenny couldn't pay the gangster. So the gangster said, I'm going to kill her unless she gives me the money or... There's this other guy that I want taken care of who owes me even more money. And if you guys collectively can kill this other guy, then I won't kill her and her debt is wiped clean. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
According to court documents, it was Lenny who procured two hitmen to do the dirty work. On September 21st, 1980, the hitmen went to a hotel where the target was staying and they began to stab him to death. But then, tragically, just the worst timing in the world, the guy's girlfriend, the target's girlfriend, walked into the hotel room while they were killing him. Oh, my God. So they killed her as well. So now it's a double homicide. They were eventually caught. The lead singer guy, the husband of the woman that had gotten them into this situation, kind of, he turned state's evidence. So he got immunity with the whole thing. Okay. And I think so did his wife because they testified. And the gangster guy ended up dying of a heart attack before the trial. So the two murderers, the hitman and Lenny, who connected everyone, were the ones who got the book thrown at them. For good reason. (laughs) Especially the guys who actually did the murdering. So he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences with like 30 years put on top like a cherry. So there's no way Lenny's ever getting out of prison. He is now working as kind of a jailhouse lawyer and helping other inmates, and he hopes someday he might be able to get out. But so far, I believe he is still in prison. So Kathy had kept Lenny's location and conviction a secret. I do not know exactly what she told Leslie or if Leslie just thought her dad was out there somewhere but not a part of her life. Or if, if she said he was dead, I have no idea why Leslie didn't know what was going on. But Kathy did not want to tell her. Probably part like protecting her from it. Of course. And I guess that a lot of Kathy's close friends and family members said, you know, you should really tell her at 18. Yeah. And she dragged a little. She didn't want to tell her for a long time. But she did finally tell her at 20. And Leslie was upset, of course. And she wanted to get to know her dad. So she started visiting him in prison. They started writing letters to each other. Phone calls were very expensive for him. And she was also young and struggling. So they only got to talk on the phone like once a month when she moved, but they always did. And he felt like they were really building a relationship and was, of course, powerless and desperate and sad in this situation. But he did not have anything to do with the murder, even though it's a bizarre murder connection. Oh, my God. I know. They looked into whether he would have, like, contracted anyone out to do it, out, even outside, but there was no motive. He didn't want his daughter dead. In fact, by every account, they were building a warm relationship and they were reunited. So they have eliminated so many people at this point. They have eliminated everyone they could possibly think of who was connected to Adrian and Leslie and even Lauren, like I said, the surviving roommate. They had the DNA, they had run it through the system, and it was clear that the killer was not in the system. I don't know if they got his fingerprints or her fingerprints as well, but for whatever reason, it did not seem like this person was in the system at all, at least definitely based on the DNA. As the months went by, it seemed more and more likely that the killer maybe was actually unrelated to the women, and they could have a potential serial killer stalking wine country at this point. Slasher serial killers aren't exactly great for tourism, which is Napa Valley's bread and butter. And furthermore, this is a pretty small community. And up until Halloween night, it seemed very safe. And it's a place where people look out for one another. So the local vintners and 
businesses ended up banding together to raise $100,000 for a reward for any tips that led to the arrest of the person who had killed Leslie and Adrian. The police were getting a lot of heat as well, as you can imagine, with how months have gone by. Why isn't this getting solved? What's going on here? They ended up interviewing over 1,200 individuals, and I believe that they tested almost 300 people's DNA. They were trying anyone that was connected to them at this point, trying to find out, which is not a cheap or easy process. (sighs) But what are they going to do, you know? There's nothing else to do. And now they're worried. They're like, well, what if it was a migrant worker? Because they have seasonal migrant workers who pick the grapes, who maybe came from Mexico or some other place and now is back and left the country potentially. It had been months at this point, so anyone could have gotten anywhere. So they really need some help. And they decided to send the DNA samples to this very special lab in Sarasota, Florida, that was doing cutting technology to isolate basically what features this person had. They could tell the ethnicity based on where the DNA had originated from. Like like the stuff you learn when you do like a 23andMe almost, but this is back in 2004. So they're like going to try to isolate maybe even what the person looked like. And they could definitely tell you whether it was a man or a woman. So they're hoping to do that so that they can start narrowing down this profile that they're looking for. While that was all going on, the world continued to spin. The lack of resolution in the case had made it very hard for the loved ones of Leslie and Adrian to move on with their lives. A killer was still out there, and there were so many questions. If they were going to strike again, if Lauren was safe, poor Lauren was terrified. Also, If this was targeted, why would anyone target these two amazing, promising women that people could not stop gushing about? But they honored them by trying to create memorials, to do things to keep their case alive and keep their face in the media. And they also tried to live their life with intention because clearly every day really does count. So Adrian's best friend, Lily, kept the fires burning, literally. She organized candlelight vigils. She spoke several times to the media. She became a huge support to Arlene, helping her through her grief and really bonding with her and being like another, like her third daughter. Like she was kind of like, it felt like Lily was keeping Adrian alive for Arlene a lot. In April of 2005, Lily spoke to 48 Hours about the complicated feelings that all of Adrian's and Leslie's loved ones were having about like fear and disbelief and so much anger. She said, I've gotten pretty angry about what happened, that anyone could do this. I'm a little afraid almost to have a face and a name to put the blame on and all my grief, just hang it on this person. I'm afraid to see who that person might've been. I don't know whether this person is crazy, but it's so out of the realm of the ordinary. It's very hard to wrap my brain around what happened It just doesn't make any sense. And I don't know if it's going to get any easier when we do have a face and name. But it wasn't all sadness. Lily and her boyfriend, Eric, had been brought closer by this senseless crime. They had put whatever differences had occurred behind them. And Eric had really been there to support Lily through losing her best friend. So because now Lily and Arlene are so close as well, Arlene was overjoyed when Lily told her that she and Eric were planning to wed and they wanted Arlene to be part of the ceremony. 
Because she said that basically Adrian would have been such a big part of the ceremony. And since she could not be there, it only felt right that Arlene was there being Adrian's presence. 100%. So Arlene read a passage from Song of Solomon, and she said that she was smiling at the couple, especially Lily, who reminded so much of her own lost daughter. And she said to them, love is stronger than death, passion stronger than the grave. At the reception afterwards, Lily dedicated She Will Be Loved by Maroon 5 to Adrian because it was her favorite song. Lily later said, we danced to it and we kind of all felt like she was there. She certainly would have been there and a huge part of it if she had been alive. Meanwhile, Leslie's best pageant pal, Kelly McCorkle, had, she was the one who won the Miss South Carolina contest and she was really close with Leslie. She had ended up competing in the amazing race only three weeks after Leslie was killed. Oh my God. So it was kind of in her honor. And then when she was done being on the show, she wanted to do something good in Leslie's name. So she created a mini amazing race and got famous competitors like Rob and Amber from Survivor to participate in what she called the raising race. And they raised enough money to build Leslie's cottage on the grounds of the Home for Abused Children. Oh. Yeah, the same organization that she had once raised funds for herself. That's very sweet. It's very sweet. It's very sad that she was working for Stephanie's cottage and now there's a Leslie's cottage next to Stephanie. And that's what the person who was running the organization said, that it was just such a travesty that she was trying so hard to bring awareness to what these children had gone through. And then she was a victim of senseless violence herself. Kathy, Leslie's mother, said, There's no way to make meaning out of losing my daughter, but I'm so proud of Kelly and my son and those who have worked so hard to make this happen. And I have real hope that Leslie's cottage will be built. We need to create awareness of child abuse, and this is a step. There's not much that can help with the pain of losing a child, but every night before you go to bed, hug your child and tell them you love them. Nothing is more important in the world than that. Leslie told me many times that she knew she was loved. She never didn't feel loved. And that's a great comfort I have right now. If that is the legacy she leaves, the children should be loved, then I could have some peace with that. Yep. Oh, man, this is hard one on the heart, huh? All of these people are just so level-headed and full of love in this, like, insanely senseless crime. Yeah, I think that's what really got me about this case with all of these people trying to do their best and get through this. And also just how young and full of promise and how much ability Adrian and Leslie had to put good into the world that was taken out. And had impacted so many people at such a young age. Yeah. By the end of summer 2005, the cops finally had some forensic evidence to narrow down their manhunt. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> The scientists at DNA Print Genomics determined that the killer was most definitely a man whose ancestry was 96% Northern European and 4% Southeastern European. In short, he's white. White. Yes, he's very white, this guy. And it's a guy. It's 100% definitely a man. But what's more was they were able to determine with 85% certainty that the killer was blonde and he had either blue or green eyes. Wild. Isn't that crazy? Especially that this is happening almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Back in California, the detectives were working to find the killer based on the cigarettes he left at the crime scene. 
Turns out that the cigarettes were camel Turkish golds. Specific. Very specific. There was like a specific design. They didn't say camels on them, but they had a design around the filter. They were able to determine that they were definitely that brand. And Turkish gold at the time of the murder had only been on the market for a few months. Wow. Okay. So this is a relatively new type of cigarette. Not many people in the area sold them. So their first thing that they did was go to the small amount of convenience stores in the area that sold Turkish gold to try to figure out if there was somebody that they could remember buying them. But nobody could remember somebody specifically buying them, unfortunately. The next thing that they did is question people who knew, obviously, Adrian and Leslie and see if anybody knew somebody who smoked Turkish gold specifically. And on September 22nd, 2005, the police released the information, all of the information, everything they got from the DNA test, the type of cigarette that the killer smoked, because they figured that somebody is going to all of a sudden be looking at their blonde haired, blue eyed friend at the bar where he's smoking a Turkish gold and has a mysterious scar on his hand and go, wait a minute, where were you Halloween night? So they figured with those factors combined, hopefully they would get a tip that would lead to the arrest of this individual. So prior to releasing the information, they had also, like I said, asked Lauren, could they, she think of anyone? And their friends weren't really a big group of smokers. She said, however, though, that when Adrian moved in, she remembered that Lily and Eric had helped her move in. And that they had had a cigarette at some point, though she could not remember the type. So with that, they, they called Eric and they were like, we're going to need you to come in for an interview. But he did not come in for an interview. You're fucking lying. You're lying. He didn't call them back. It's not going this way, is it? Well, he does have blonde hair. Jessica! Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Oh my God, my face is melting. <laughs> you look like the scream painting right now. <laughs> you really do. Uh, yeah. So only five days after releasing the information to the public, the police got a huge break in the case. Break might be an understatement because Andy, the killer, walked into the police station and turned himself in. He confessed to both murders and he knew details the police had purposely kept secret from the public. The man who walked into that police station did indeed have blonde hair, blue eyes. He smoked Turkish golds, and his name was Eric Koppel, Adrian's best friend's husband. Shit. Can you believe it? It's Lily's husband, Eric. No. Why? What? How? Was he cheating on Lily with one of them? No, that's the screwed up thing. He absolutely was not having an affair with either of them. So we're going to go through his confession, and then we're going to talk about what we can glean from what he says and why people really think he did it. Because to everyone's knowledge, and he never copped to any sort of romantic feelings for either of the women, this was all about his own rage and Lily. So Eric had seen the news about the DNA results and the cigarettes. And then he had, of course, received the phone call from the detective asking him to come down to the station for an interview. And he thought that the writing was on the wall. He thought that they knew, even though at this point they had no idea. And the craziest thing about this is that obviously they get a lot of heat afterwards. Like you were interviewing everyone. You were asking for DNA from everyone and you didn't think to test the boyfriend of 
Adrian's best friend. And even the 48 Hours producers say that, like, he didn't want to be interviewed because he didn't feel like he was close enough to either of the women. But, like, he was going down to where they were doing interviews so he could be there for Lily, so he could support her. So they were, like, all realizing that while they're doing these interviews and trying to help solve the case and bring awareness to it, the murderer was sitting in their studio. And people said that they had no idea. They said he was really weird. He's very quiet. He did, like, have a creepy affectation, but they thought it was less like serial killer and more like he's a very introverted guy. And no one could figure out how him and Lily had ended up together because she was so extroverted and she had that big, warm personality like Adrian. And it seemed like they were a very odd match. Oh my God. This is so fucked up for Lily. It's so fucked up for Lily. So he had written suicide notes to his brother, it sounds like, to, I think, his boss. He was working as a land surveyor at this time. And obviously he had said something to Lily, but before he killed himself, it sounds like his brother received the letter. And I think there was a a confession in the letter too. I don't know. I don't have the letter, but it seemed like it indicated what he had done. And his family, including Lily, when she was told, which I cannot even imagine how she felt, Lily did not talk to the media about this. They all told him to turn himself in. And he did. And that's what is going on here. And they polygraphed him. It appeared that he was telling the truth. And then they tested his DNA. And it was a match. Wow. So here is what Eric said about the night of the murders and kind of why he committed these horrific crimes. On the evening of Halloween, Eric and Lily had gone to a Halloween party where they played a drinking game where essentially you had to take a drink every time you lost a hand and Eric kept losing. So he got pretty shit-faced and he said something that either upset or embarrassed Lily. And they were still living together even though they had called the wedding off and they were figuring out whether they were going to reschedule it. And so they got into this huge fight. Lily drove him home because he was too drunk to drive. And her parents were in Hawaii because they had bought a non-refundable trip when they thought their daughter was going to get married in Hawaii. So her parents are in Hawaii and they lived locally. So she said, I'm dropping you off at our apartment and I'm not staying here with you because I'm angry with you and I'm going to go stay at my parents' house while they're gone. So her parents are gone. She goes to her parents' house. This is why she had no idea that it was, yeah, her husband. Now, he maintains that he was very drunk. The people at the party can say that he was very drunk. He maintains that he was like blackout level drunk. He claimed that at home he passed out and then he woke up at some point and went into his garage and got the zip ties, which why do you even have those? I mean, I guess, but still, I don't know. I don't know. It's very odd. I don't go grab zip ties when I'm blackout drunk. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's the whole thing is very odd. He could not tell the police why he took them either. I mean, I guess maybe you'd need them in some sort of construction situation, but he's a land surveyor, so maybe he uses them in his job, but still, it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, I use them to tie my fence, my bamboo fence against the chain link fence, but I'm just saying, like, I feel like if he's trying to get away with, like, he didn't have an intention to kill them. Then why did he have the zip ties? Yeah, he wasn't exactly deciding to fix their fence in the middle of the night. He remembers getting the zip ties and grabbing a knife that had a four or five inch blade He claims that he was in and out of consciousness. Like, he doesn't really remember. He's just having a spotty memory situation. The detectives also noted that there are times that his confession directly contradicts what the evidence suggests. 
So we don't know for sure if he's purposely lying. He's minimizing psychologically what he's done and he can't bear to actually say it out loud. Or if he truly can't remember some details of the evening due to being under the influence. We don't know. From his garage, he drove to Dorset Street and he said that he did remember standing by the front garage of the women's house and he remembered the light coming on, the light that woke up Lauren. He also denied casing the house or looking for a way in and said he was not in the back of the house, which doesn't make sense because why else would his cigarette with his DNA be back there? So that's another part where it's directly contradicting what we know to be true. He said he did remember prying open the window by the front door. So Lauren had locked all of the doors, but she did not lock the windows, which I totally understand because I've, like in Millerton, I felt so safe. I can recall like locking my door, but I don't, I might've even left a window open with the screen on occasion. So he had pried the window open and like the screen out with his knife. And he does remember that. Now he says that he went upstairs and he recalled hearing Lauren's dog growling as he passed her room. He claims to have walked into a bedroom, he doesn't say which one, and fallen asleep on a pile of clothes on the floor. And then he said he remembered a light being turned on and this is where his memory gets spotty again. He remembers being hit in the face by Adrian, but he does not remember stabbing her. Once again, convenient. Convenient. Now, he is making it sound like he attacked Adrian first, which we do not think that was the case and doesn't line up with what Lauren remembers. He says he vaguely recalled hearing a thump behind him. So something's going on with Adrian. He's having in and out flashes of what happened. There was some violent act he knew. And then he looked back at Leslie's dark bedroom And again, he's convinced he did kill her because he knows the facts. He knows that his DNA was found at the scene and he knows what happened after. But he doesn't remember, at least this is what he's saying. He doesn't remember exactly killing both women. But he does remember leaving the house, running down the stairs. And he went out the window, which is very weird because the front door was right next door. And he could have just unlocked the front door and walked out. But he went back out the window and he got caught in the wooden blinds, which is why Lauren heard him messing with them. And he got blood on the wooden blinds, which they were able to extract his DNA from that blood as well. He kind of fell out of the window. And then he said that his car window was open. So he threw the bloody knife in his car. Authorities have not revealed whether they extracted any other DNA from his car. But I mean, at this point, his goose is cooked. He drove home and he does remember getting home and realizing that he is covered with blood and he started a fire in the fire pit in his backyard and he burned his clothes, though he could not recall or would not say what he did with a knife. But the prosecutor was like, you're done. We've got you. We've got you dead to rights. And also, if you were going to go for an insanity defense, the fact that you were cognizant enough to burn all of your clothes and burn the evidence and try to to get away with it means that we're not, you're not going to get that. You're not going to go there. The only reason that Eric gave to the police for committing the murders was that he was having, quote, problems with his life and problems with his family. Eric's parents, who were extremely religious, were divorcing. And that was around the same time that Lily had called off the wedding. He would later hint at some secret cause of the divorce or stuff that was going on with his family saying, quote, 
My immediate family dissolved largely as a result of certain disturbing revelations about specific members. We do not know what that is because, again, Eric and Lily have not talked to the media about this. His grandfather had recently passed as well. He, I guess the land surveyor business wasn't going very well. He didn't have reliable work. But he never actually said exactly why he killed them. It is believed that the target was Adrian and that he killed her on that early morning of what was supposed to be his wedding day because he was jealous and angry about how close the two women were. And he also blamed Adrian for Lily calling off the wedding. He thought that Adrian had some undue influence over Lily and without her meddling, which was really just her support. Her mother Arlene said that Adrian had never said a bad word about Eric without Adrian meddling that he would have been married. So that is the only motive that we can come up with this because he's also never talked explicitly about why. There was some additional speculation that Eric had killed Leslie because he was attracted to her. There was some story that like he had been at their house and he didn't want to leave because he was talking to Leslie or something like that. But like I read so many other sources that said that they had never even met, that Lily had met Leslie, but Eric wasn't always around because they were kind of on and off. And also Leslie was like a relatively newish friend and they didn't always hang out together. They had different circles. So I don't think he even ever met Leslie. So I don't think that's, you can completely discount that speculation. I wondered to myself, like if the blackout story is real, like the DA did not believe the blackout story. He just said it was an excuse trying to minimize what he had done because he was going to get caught and he didn't want to say exactly why he did it or how he did it or yeah, he didn't want to relive it. He didn't want people to think he was more of a monster than he obviously is. But I wondered if the blackout story was true, was maybe he drawn to the house because he thought maybe Lily had gone there. She'd gone to her best friend's house potentially after a fight. I don't know. I don't know about the zip ties. Was he going to kidnap Adrian? Or assault her? Yeah, or assault her. Nothing makes sense. No one, including Arlene, believes that Lily had any idea that Eric had killed Leslie and Adrian until shortly before he confessed publicly. Which is crazy because I read that quote about her being like, I don't know if it's going to get any easier when I have somebody to blame for this. And it was the man who was sitting off camera right next to her that she had stood up and married with the victim's mother speaking at their ceremony. Lily did, however, stand by her man throughout the hearing and the sentencing. She did not divorce him right away. Eric did not end up going to trial. In exchange for a guilty plea, the prosecutor took the death penalty off the table and Eric was sentenced to spend the rest of his life behind bars without the possibility of parole. And if he should ever appeal his sentence or the plea deal and arrangement that they made, the death penalty will be put back on the table. Though Leslie's brothers would have very happily walked him to the gas chamber themselves, neither Kathy nor Arlene wanted the death penalty. Yeah, because they're amazing people. Yes. Well, I think for Kathy, it was moral reasons. She's a minister. She believes in the sanctity of life. So it's like on an ethical reason, she didn't want to go there. And honestly, for Arlene, she said, I want him to suffer. He's not going to suffer if he just gets to die. He's going to suffer if he has to live every single day of the miserable rest of his life thinking about what he did and what he took from the world. What about Lily, babe? 
Yeah. I don't know. We're going to talk about that a little bit in the end. I'm just going to get through the sentencing. So during the sentencing, Eric did not respond to anything. So he is like stone-faced, mute. They're talking about there's huge pictures blown up of Leslie and Adrian. And of course, their loved ones are getting up to do their victim impact statements. And he had no remorse on his face, no response. Not when Leslie's grandmother got up to speak, her Grammy, when Kathy addressed him directly. I mean, Leslie's brothers spoke, all of her best friends gave statements. I mean, and he's got nothing, stone-faced. It wasn't until Arlene spoke that Eric showed any emotion. And she delivered this powerful, epic statement and her voice is going up and she's getting angry while she's speaking. And all of a sudden he's like looking, he's trying to avoid looking. His face starts turning redder and redder. And he started rubbing his head as if like he had a huge headache or he was like trying to get rid of something. But she was just so strong and so impactful. What Arlene said was, Eric, you knew Adrian. She counted you among her friends and you know me. Do you remember how we met? Eric, I know you. I know that you are a man who brutally and callously took the life of a wonderful woman. You're a man who violently stabbed to death the best friend of the woman you love. That is not love, Eric. You cannot love Lily and murder her best friend. You cannot love Lily and bring a knife into Adrian's home and stab her and stab her and stab her again and again and again. She said, my baby never wore a turtleneck sweater in her life, and yet she had to be buried in one. And still, it could not hide the extent of her wounds, wounds that you inflicted on her. Yes, I know you, Eric. You are a man who is so cruel as to invite me, the mother of the woman you murdered, to stand up for you at your wedding, to read scripture to you of love and death, and to bless your union. I know you, Eric. You are a murderer and a coward. You are defined by your actions, Eric, and yours prove you to be the basest of murderers, a liar, and a coward. So I say to you, Eric, go. Leave this world of family and friends, of hopes and dreams, of love and life and laughter. There's no place for you here. For while in the years ahead, the memory of Leslie and Adrian will remain clear and shining bright in our hearts and in our minds, you will be forgotten. And when that door closes behind you today, I will think of you no more. Fuck yes. Oh, chills. Like he started crying. And next was Lily. And now Lily was speaking for him, kind of. She said thank you to the families for agreeing to the plea bargain so that it would spare Eric's life. And she basically gave mitigating factors saying that he was depressed, he was drinking too much, this was not the man she knew, the man who stands before you today is not the man who committed this, he has good Christian values, he's never committed a crime before in his life. It's like, oh, honey, this is like, I know that you're trying to get the judge to think fondly of this guy, but it's not, this is not going to work. This is not the time. But I guess when Lily was speaking, he started like really like crying so hard that his body was like heaving. Eric was given the opportunity to apologize to Leslie and Adrian's families. And he did so, but it seemed like he still could not really explain what drove him to kill, except for being in a bad mental state with his family and his love life collapsing. He maintained that what he told the police was all accurate and that he truly could not remember the blackouts like the DA was suggesting. Author Paula Rosa commented in his book on one part where Eric called Lily his singular ray of light in an otherwise black world. And he felt that this was basically confirming the theory behind him killing Adrian because he somehow thought 
that Adrian was the obstacle or Adrian was the one that was taking away that singular ray of light in his dark world. In the end, Eric did that to himself because though Lily stood by him for the sentencing, she did divorce him shortly after he went to prison. He also took away two other bright lights who had limitless possibility to spread joy and put good into the world, and that is truly the tragedy here. Whoa. In conclusion, ugh, this is a tough one, and this is something I I forget to do too. This is with not shaming anyone involved in the situation because they could not have known, but it is important to remember to like lock your windows to guys and make sure you're safe because I forget that all the time when I lock my doors. Yeah. And this story is just a true reminder of how love and brightness and light and laughter and being just a joyous person altogether completely outshines all of the negative things that can be happening in the world and people like Eric. Oh, 100%. I mean, I feel like we just talked for like almost two hours and it was all about the beauty that Adrian and Leslie put into the world and very little about the man that took them out. Which is how it should be. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Have a safe Halloween, guys. Love ya. Bye. 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 